мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. We are under attack. It is an attack against Western democracies and on the institutions that bind them. What Russia is much more interested in doing is depicting the West as a failure. Briefly, my friend Dan Yanukovych, they were trying to protect their enormous wealth. This is Kremlin Fire. It's all good. Okay, everybody. Welcome, welcome to Kremlin File. Julia Davis. We have Julia Davis with us. Hi, Julia. Hi. So good to be with you. It's, I'm honored to be invited. No, we're we're honored. Okay. <laughs> exactly. I know. I mean, I've been following your Russian um, media monitor uh, that you can find on YouTube, everybody. So hop on there and go and look at all the clips. On uh, Twitter which, too, until and on, twi- Elmo, on Twitter, yeah. Elon, whatever that uh, <laughs> sociopath exactly. started silencing everyone. But <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. So you know, it's I've been following everything that you uh, that you're producing, and I I'd like to actually start off with a question that I think you probably get everywhere, but I think I really need to ask it because I watch these clips. And, you know, I'm reading the subtitles. Sometimes I, I watch them two or three times just to see if I've actually understood, you know, what if this is it kind of thing. I'm having conniptions the whole time. Uh, or, I mean, the ideas are insulting and they're just absolutely crazy, especially towards Ukrainians. Um, you know, also the West. But let's put that aside for a, especially with you. Julie, how do you do it? How do you do this every single day? I do it as a, a collecting evidence. So I try to be as uh, cool and calm about it and think about what matters, what's important for the Western societies to see that they probably didn't realize about Russia and also what I uh, hope will someday be played at their trials in Hague because it's so uh, atrocious what's happening, and they're also quite open about it. So that's how mm. I approach it. And that's um, that's the only way to uh, really maintain a cool head about it, because, as you said, it is completely outrageous and uh, very hard to stomach when you understand that they're not only saying these things, but they're actually doing them, and people are dying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you also presented evidence, if I'm not mistaken, not long ago. Was it at the UN with all of the the, the material that you had gathered? The professor, Timothy Snyder, had uh, referenced my work at the UN when uh, the Russian ambassador in Benzia pretended like he didn't know what was being said and complained about this um, terrible Russophobia and claimed that there were no uh, genocidal statements made in the Russian state media, which, of course, you have seen uh, mm-hmm. just through what I put out alone, that it happens and uh, not only, um, you know, regularly, but it, it's a basically constant uh, drumbeat. Um, certainly they leave it to their mouthpieces to to say not the um, Putin himself or his uh, spokespeople, but his mouthpieces are just as much as um, a part of the the regime's um, bullhorn as anybody else, because nothing is being said there without being first sanctioned by the Kremlins or their handlers related to the Kremlin. Yeah. 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 yeah no, it definitely is difficult to stomach, and I mean. This is something that, uh, you know, goes back to the Soviet Union, goes back to the Tsars. I mean, uh, propaganda is definitely what Russia is, exceeds that. Um, Julia, let's start with the propaganda in regards to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. For a decade, Russia's propaganda ran like a well-oiled machine. I also, you know, grew up with listening to this garbage and and you know and normally everyone was on the same page but when russia started suffering humiliating losses on the uh front lines in ukraine you suddenly saw a crack and this started happening about pretty much exactly a year ago in august 
um, especially as Ukraine was gearing up for their successful counteroffensive. You started seeing a crack and, you know, and seeing like outrage and critique towards Russia's, uh, you know, uh, defense ministry and even like uh, the Kremlin. And it was something that has, you really have never seen so much before. Can you discuss, uh, discuss how it changed? Yes, it was uh, quite remarkable when uh, you could actually see some criticism taking place, especially when they started their mobilization and people were complaining, and then when their troops didn't have the ammo, didn't have what they needed, because obviously, um, as we've all seen, they were prepared for this quick three-day thing. Uh, some actually estimated that it would only take hours to take Kiev. So they were utterly unprepared for the scale of the war. This had become, even though the West had repeatedly warned them, don't do it, don't do it, but uh, they thought it would be just like Crimea. It would be uh, very Mm. light sanctions and it would end very quickly. So when it didn't, it caught them off guard. And that's when um, it was so interesting to see even most loyal mouthpieces voicing criticism. Although they have uh, gotten it under control pretty well since then, and um, uh, they had actually commented that now, uh, without Prigozhin, with his recordings, when he was still alive, they were saying, oh, now, now that this felon is not constantly recording his videos, look how nice everything is. No one is complaining mm. anymore. They mm. have everything they need, which, of course, um, they're not complaining for other reasons. Uh, they're trying to stay out of trouble and stay alive. But they actually made made those statements. And uh, there are still a lot of inconsistencies when something happens. I like to capture their very first reaction before they've received their notes as to what the official line is supposed to be, then it could really um, show what they're really thinking. So it could be quite interesting. Right now with uh, uh, Robotne, what is happening in Robotne, mm. they, at mm. first they had claimed this is such an important spot. Um, we're keeping it, and now with the Ukrainian troops advancing, all of a sudden they're saying, oh, who cares about it? It's just a little spit on the map. It doesn't mean mm. anything. So, And things like that are, are changing very rapidly. But there again, I don't see any criticism anymore, and especially uh, with uh, Prigozhin's death, it really seemed to have sent shockwaves through the ranks of propagandists because – they're a lot more nervous than before, and uh, mm. they all, uh, not that it surprised anyone, I mean, they all said right after the mutiny that the only way out of it for Prigozhin and Utkin would be uh, a bullet to their head. They, in other words, they were going to get them no matter what, but it serves as yet another reminder that no matter how useful they are to Putin's regime, mm. if there is any reason whatsoever that he suspects their disloyalty or if they're no longer needed, they could be done away with just as quickly, just like turning off the light. So um, it really was the equivalent of a, a cold shower, and they're acting a lot more nervous and subdued right now. Okay. Uh, Julia, so, with this, oh, go ahead. And to follow up, um, uh, the propaganda for Russia's genocide began with denazification. Despite, Mm. since 2014, Russia has actual neo-Nazi paramilitary groups fighting in Ukraine. Um, Then uh, it shifted over to the war on the West and NATO and that this is, you know, a bigger fight. Can you discuss how the propaganda has changed and where is it now? Because, I mean, as of, you know, today... Russia still calls it a special military operation. 18 months into this, you know, over 100,000, I believe, dead. Uh, Where is it now? What is their excuses for, you know, committing genocide in Ukraine? Yes, uh, as you pointed out, they started with this ludicrous claim of uh, denazification, even though uh, some of the people like... uh, the, the co-founder of Wagner himself, Utkin, is covered in Nazi tattoos and obviously is a Nazi himself. And so is uh, um, Milchakov, who was uh, decapitating poppies on, on air with a Nazi flag, and he was the one also participating in what they have uh, stirred up. 
um, in 2014 in U- in Eastern Ukraine. So it was preposterous from the start, and it didn't stick. It was obvious that people there were scratching their heads as to what to make of it because, of course, they have their own pretty prominent uh, nationalist elements there. So it never made much sense, especially since the Nazis themselves were supposedly carrying out this denazification. So they've started to amend this story. Uh, Another one became that they're doing this for God, and uh, they're having a hard time where uh, Jewish Salaviov is yelling Allahu Akbar on air to appeal to their uh, Chechen fighters and other Muslim fighters they have there. In the same breath, they're claiming to be uh, j- the troops fighting for Jesus. It, they're basically throwing it like spaghetti on the wall just to mm-hmm. see what sticks. And their ultimate agenda is to appeal to whatever they can appeal to in anybody. Uh, the angle with uh, supposedly doing this for God is that they're fighting the West that is trying to turn them all gay and is pushing the liberal agenda down their throats. So uh, this is what they're still sticking with. So almost every time they're talking about it, they will bring up something related to LGBT and claiming that someone was coming to change their way of life and that's really why they're there. But inevitably, the truth constantly surfaces when they mention Ukraine's resources, its minerals, um, its people, mm-hmm. which Russia has such problems with its demographic. And they were talking about, look at this, we're getting all these people for free. Um, how great it is. Our demographic problem will be solved. Um, and also about all these new lands they're going to get. And it's obviously... Um, you know, all about that. It has nothing to do with liberating or saving anybody. Even um, RT's Margarita Simonyan had um, uh, admitted it uh, on air on state TV saying, well, um, if they're freezing like they were hoping that people would freeze uh, in winter with cutting off electricity, she said it's okay because once they take over, then the ones that are with them, they will warm them up and feed them then. But for now, you know, it's just what it takes. What are you going to do? And, uh, it, you know, now the, the main um, theme is that when they call it war, the reason they um, their top propagandists get away with calling it war is because they're doing it in context of it being war against NATO and the West as a whole, supposedly to preserve their freedoms, which, of course, no one was encroaching upon. And it's just a, a really a, a sick joke at this point. But the, this is all presented as them fighting NATO, and they're telling their people that they are actually fighting NATO armies and military capabilities, which is certainly not true. But they have zero respect for their viewers, so it doesn't matter if they tell a new story the next day from what they said the day before. They expect them to just roll with it, and unfortunately, hmm. a large percentage of them do. Mm, in fact, you've opened a few doors here, uh, Julia, of different things that we want to get into. Um, well, first of all, just note, everyone, that Julia's been watching and having to monitor all this stuff. How, when did you start, Julia? Like you were already talking about the war in 2014. Yes, around the, uh, the time that the Ukraine's revolution of dignity started and then uh, Crimea was annexed. So. Uh, yeah. since tw- the end of 2013, the beginning of 2014. Yeah, yeah with your reference. Um, I wanted to get to sort of, it's a basic question, but I think it would help our audience to understand certain things about Russian media in general. Um, which of the narratives, it's a two-part question, so which of the narratives are really meant for domestic audiences, okay, Russians who are actually watching, right, and which ones which of this like the propaganda is really meant for like western audiences right this is this is the first one uh and then who is it that actually decides on the propaganda itself that has to you no know, uh let's say you're saying that they can switch one night it's this then something happens we you know and they say the complete opposite thing um for example one of the clips that you have on your 
uh, on your YouTube channel is exactly that. I remember listening to one and then they just flipped, right, the day after. Um, so who actually decides? So these two questions. They have their handlers, which uh, send these uh, talking points to all of their main media networks, which all of them are state-controlled. There is no independent media left in Russia, effectively. It's all been uprooted. So they are sent these notes, um, and they have uh, meetings. They receive um, this lineup of what the topics that they're supposed to focus on and the, the way that they're supposed to present it, and that is exactly what they do. And uh, like I said, it doesn't matter that it changes quite drastically. And uh, the other part of your question who is it directed at? It's directed in equal parts to their domestic audience and also Western audiences. For example, they get very excited when Western media repeats their nuclear threats. And mm. in the beginning of the war, it was done very credulously where people actually were concerned, but they did themselves a disservice. They said it so often and they said it so flippantly that I think most media organizations and most people in the West now understand that it's meant as nothing else other than a deterrent for our continued help to Ukraine. And uh, the, these uh, threats are quite hollow. And so that part is certainly directed at the West. Also, they when they talk about how much the West is losing because of its support to Ukraine, how its own people suffer. In equal parts, it's supposed to appeal to the domestic population who is, um, you know, they're complaining about their rising prices, about difficulties mm -hmm. because of sanctions. That makes them think, well, don't worry, those poor people in the West, they really suffer even worse than this. But really, they're hoping that it will be picked up and disseminated there. And also, don't forget about the Russian speakers that are living abroad that are also expected to uh, grab onto this message and spread it there locally, which uh, is part of their strategy. And there are a lot of uh, Russian speakers um, in the U.S., for example, that have their own YouTube channels that are not curtailed in any way because they're just supposedly expressing their opinion. Like the same um, blogger who was on January the 6th at the Capitol um, mm -hmm. saying that they were there just like their their grandparents um, stormed Berlin on tanks. Here they are to storm the Capitol. Anyway, nothing happened to him. And uh, he's been featured in my articles. He then, then he appeared on Russian state TV to blame Antifa, of course. Hmm. And then he's uh, putting out these uh, propaganda videos where he's essentially presenting it from the same standpoint as the Russian state media. So you could see these connections there. And there, there's a lot of that going on. And uh, like figures like Dmitry Symes, who was instrumental with Maria Butina being introduced to people here. He's all the time on air with Vladimir Solovyov. And, of course, he still has his connections. He still claims to have sources in the White House. So it's all very interconnected. So they know they're not broadcasting in a vacuum. Uh, someone somewhere will repeat it and spread it, and they're certainly making sure that the right messages are being uh, put out there for both their domestic and international consumption. Yeah. To add to that, um, with Dimitri Sainz, I personally, you know, in my investigations was told years ago that um, he was uh, uh, recruited by the KGB in the 70s. And he's been living wow. on U.S. soil for quite a while. And as far as with the talking points to add, I mean, Russia puts so many resources to um, target Russian speakers in the West. I mean, it's a whole operation, you know, run through Rosetrudnichisvo, which is an SVR. And, I mean, everyone shares it, but it's mainly an SVR front. Um, and it is like part of their intelligence operations to make sure that um, anyone who came from Eastern Europe, from Russia, from Ukraine, uh, never fully assimilated into the West.
Absolutely, okay, so and yeah. and that's something that I often reiterate to people that just say, well, why would we care about Russia? Why would we care about what they're doing? And I always tell them it doesn't matter whether you care about Russia. Russia cares about you. And a lot of these people are consuming Russian propaganda without even realizing uh, the original source of where this this kind of a narrative, this kind of a slant uh, came from. Actually comes from, yeah, exactly. Now, um, let's get to the demographics. Uh, Russian state media, can you discuss the age groups that watch and read uh, state media? And also, we have seen a rise, you know, as with everything else, with social media, with telegram channels. And you have the mill bloggers and the regular bloggers um, reporting in real time, and it's very uncensored. How does the rise in these telegram channels um, disrupt Russia's official state propaganda? Because I'm telling you, in the Soviet Union, like, you know, uh, U.S. and, and in general, Western intelligence services would, you know, do anything to see what's happening inside of Russia, to look at any signs of anything. Now all you have to do is go on Telegram and you pretty much see everything, get it in real time. So how are those two conflicting with each other? The military bloggers is definitely something that Russian propagandists often acknowledge is a big problem for them. And they're actively talking about new laws that would curtail it, about the need for uh, wartime censorship. So they're trying to implement that, and they're actively talking about prohibiting people from posting pictures, recording videos, or sharing any information related to military activities. So we may see them put a halt to it, and uh, especially since in the heat of things, people write things that uh, obviously are critical of the regime and, and of their operations. So they see it as a major problem. I, I see these uh, top propagandists complaining about that all the time and Duma members talking about how they're planning to stop it. And as far as the demographics for the people that watch Russian state media, According to propagandists themselves, their biggest audience is uh, people over 40. Uh, mm -hmm. And the people that are younger than that tend to get more of their information on the Internet. They use VPNs. There again, they read the bloggers on Telegram and other places. They're very immersed in what is being said in the West, and that too is seen as a major problem. I've seen uh, recently they've cracked down on VPNs and uh, started to make it more difficult for them to access it because um, that is a big difference between what was happening in the Soviet Union where when I was growing up there, we would quietly listen to Voice of America to find out what's really happening in the world. But right now, it's like a wide open window if you want this information. It's right there. They, uh, Margarita Simonyan, the head of RT, that claimed to be so concerned about the freedoms and freedom of the press and all of that, secretly apparently has been yearning for Russia to be like China, which she said on uh, one of Solovyov's programs. So that mm -hmm. is ultimately their goal, to try to erect this kind of a uh, barrier where they could prohibit people from being able to e so easily access what is being said in the West, because this is why I see them often having to respond to statements from Western officials or statements um, in the news here because they know that younger people are able to see it so they can't just leave it and not address it versus if they were able to stop the flow of information then they could just create their own chamber where they fully control what they consume. So they are trying to deal with this uh, problem because they see the younger people as uh, significantly less patriotic because they have uh, better opportunities to find out what's truly happening and not just what the propagandists are trying to sell them. Okay. That's a very, very interesting point. So there is, let's say, this divide you know, in in the demographics, which, you know, also in, in the West, I guess, who's ever watching TV, whoever is on Internet, that kind of thing. Let's talk about another divide. Okay, Julia. 
we've seen now that there are, there are let's say a lot of factions that are sort of warring against each other right in the kremlin at the top on different levels is any of that leaking into state media or not by very very small um uh, measures sometimes you can hear uh, propagandists attacking the people that i think they they believe the kremlin would want them to attack like they're constantly going after the central bank they're criticizing the uh, senator narusova for going to spain for example there are these squabbles between uh, a state duma member Matvechev, who apparently has been writing complaints against uh, top propagandist Vladimir Solovyov. So those kind of little things will leak in there. And when they start to criticize a certain part of the elites, then you know that for some reason they have displeased Mm. the Kremlin because, you know, they will criticize someone for having yachts or for going abroad when you know that, in fact, this basically applies to Everyone in Putin's circle, they have uh, made it their their main occupation is accumulating riches, which they thought that they would get to continue to spend lavishly and enjoy in the West. So uh, it it does leak out, but it's uh, pretty tightly um, controlled. So not as much, you know, as as you'd like to get the full picture, but. The fact is that there are um, some divisions and there are some squabbles happening with what recently happened to Prigozhin. I expect it would be a lot. It'll be a lot more quiet in the near future because they're all worried about uh, displeasing the wrong person, and uh, mm-hmm. so it'll probably quiet down for for a little while in terms of their internal squabbles and arguments. Okay, so that's why. I was watching one of the clips with uh, Solovyev and he was talking about the economics and how everything was going up. The ruble was crashing, um, you know, inflation uh, and all of that kind of thing and how everything was getting much more expensive. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I said, oh, okay, why is this out there? And you've just now explained, right? So this is how they use uh, those, um, let's say that propaganda. Mm. Yes, for example, if he wants to, you know, he knows people are displeased about the rising prices, about what's happening with the, with the dollar versus ruble, which is really embarrassing to them. So to make sure that people, to make sure that people don't blame Putin, they will name Mm -hmm. someone who they're supposed to direct that rage to. So he's constantly naming the central bank and Elvira Nabiulina and that, that way, here, go be mad at this person. This is the person that is uh, doing it all wrong. And now that Putin knows about it, then it'll all be fixed if only this person wasn't in the way. So it's usually directed from somewhere else where someone will displease Putin and then they will be named as the culprit. Yeah, yeah. In fact, seeing all of it even, and and I'm, I'm sure Olga's going to ask about uh, both, either Trump or with uh uh, with Prigozhin, but um, all of this sort of the directing, right? All of the attention towards somebody else, and Putin is not. You can't touch him. You cannot touch him. That's what we see in the clips constantly, constantly. Um, now, before we turn to U.S., um, there were reports last fall, you know, with a pretty much a whole elite class realizing they're never going to get Ukraine. I mean, at this point, mm-hmm. anyone who has a brain cell understands they're never going to get to Kiev, they're never going to get Ukraine. And, you know, and things are, you know, the conditions inside of Russia are getting harder. Do the propagandists realize this too? Or they are continuing mm-hmm. the beat as normal? They continue to... Uh, promote this idea that they will certainly win in the end, but you can see there's hesitation and they will sometimes slip up and make a revealing comment. Like in one of his recent interviews, Vladimir Solovyov was talking to a a forecaster um, to talk about the future. And then he slipped up and asked her, well, will Russia even exist? (laughs) So you could see their major doubts that are happening there. Uh, although they, of course, immediately correct themselves and say, yes, we'll win. There's no way around it. But, yes, they are concerned. And uh, 
you said we'll talk about it before turning to the U.S., but there again, it's directly tied to the U.S. because statements from figures like Trump and others in the Republican Party, that is what is making them think that all they have to do is just hang in there and keep keep at it until someone like Trump gets elected and hands them Ukraine and they will get it that way. So in a way, this is prolonging this war and they see no need to to pull out and and claim that they've already won because they think, well, we just need to persevere and then we'll get it anyway. That, but, you know, just not through war itself, but just by grinding it and up to a point when someone shows up and says we're not helping Ukraine anymore and mm-hmm. then they'll be able to to crush them or so they think. Okay. Yep. Okay. So and that's one of my biggest concerns because I've uh, noticed a huge uptick and extremely early compared to uh 2016 with Russia already, you know, having their favorites. I mean, on their Russian state media, they have Vivek Ramaswamy and yeah. RFK Jr. You know, can you discuss that and how they're propping up, like, you know, and what their intentions are with U.S. Mm. elections? Because on the background, I already see there, you know, that they are beginning to, uh, to run their interference operations. Um, can you discuss what's happening on state media with this? And then uh, to follow up, how is the media reacting to Trump's indictment? And do they mm. believe he will be jailed? And, um, you know, or do they think by some miracle he will get into the White House? They're kind of uh, undecided as to how it will play out with Trump in the end. But they believe that the indictments are in his favor and are only making him more popular. And uh, also, they are very encouraged by the current slant of the Republican Party, where they say the top three candidates are all in favor of discontinuing help to Ukraine. So they're certainly all gung-ho for Republicans. Uh, In the meantime, they have picked out their top favorites, and they already said that if uh, Trump doesn't... um, for some reason can't uh, be elected or can't run or is ends up in jail, then they will certainly support DeSantis or Ramaswamy, their new favorite. So they're mm-hmm. certainly eyeing all of them, but they're comforted by the fact that whoever it ends up will likely oppose continued aid to Ukraine. So um, in general, they're for the Republican nominee, whoever it will be. They were irritated by what Nikki Haley said. They're not not really that big into her, but they don't think she stands a chance either way. So they think any Republican nominee will be to their advantage. So they will most certainly support whoever it is. Um, But Trump remains their favorite. Um, And they, they openly refer to him as a moron, but I guess that's part of the attraction. They would like us to be led by someone they consider to be a moron. So, you know, the worse for us, the better for them. And they openly say that. Wow. And wow. during it, during Trump's uh, regime's reign, um, they, I mean, literally, like I would say on a daily basis, reminded our Trump, not Trump, yeah. our Trump. We put him yeah. here, we could take him out. I mean, this is like the propaganda you heard. I mean, they're, they're, they weren't far off once they were correct about that. But I mean, this is all the reminder that they uh, gave to their audience and to the foreign audience on a daily yeah. basis. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're still continuing even with the indictment when they, they were going over his height and weight and the hair color. They were saying, Oh, our strawberry blonde. There's only one of him in Washington. So it's, <laughs> it's certainly still a, a continued reminder that he belongs to them and they're, oh, they're wow. on his side no matter what. And he's wow. happy from his part too, belong to them. Because yeah. he still continues <laughs> yeah. to praise them. Oh, exactly. absolutely. Absolutely. And he's constantly providing those reminders that he will give Putin what he wants if he ends up on top. And uh, on his part, it looks like he's trying to make sure that that support continues because, you know, he doesn't uh, 
say no to support from anyone, as we've seen from the unsavory characters that he tends to surround himself with. So why not Putin? Yep. Hmm. Uh, talking about, I mean, we're talking about leadership, right? Levels and that kind of thing. But I was kind of curious about sort of the lower level. Um, I guess I don't know what you would call them. They come from the States. Uh, people like Scott Ritter. Yeah, traitors. Thank you. That's the proper word for them. Um, people like Scott Ritter, okay, and I know a few Italians, for example, that uh, have appeared on um, on Russian, uh, Russian state media uh, as well. What is the strategy behind using these kind of figures exactly? Well, they're basically enjoying whatever they can get, and uh, they try to avoid uh, discussing the background of some of these uh, figures, which is quite unsavory. But basically, this is all they could get. And to their audience, it gives an impression that they have support even in the West. So they, they saturate their media with a lot of these clips. So anyone who makes a statement that is in their favor, like uh, Douglas McGregor, who's constantly mm. on Fox talking about how Ukraine is already gone and everyone's already dead and Russia already won. No matter how ridiculous it is and how wrong he is every single time, they play those clips almost daily. They play Tucker Carlson's clips, and now it's more difficult for them because he's not on Fox, but they're still playing whatever he's putting out. So... Anything that sounds uh, like it supports their position and bashes Ukraine, they're happy to to have. Um, you know, the level of celebrities that ends up going in Russia doesn't tend mm. to be of the highest caliber, but they will take and use whatever they can get. And basically, that's what they're content with. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Their recruitment from Soviet days has significantly dropped when they're it sending has. a oh, Russian honeypot to some <laughs> weirdo Hinkle on uh, on Twitter that no one's ever even heard of, and yeah. and now he's you know chiming in daily, morning to night, spewing Kremlin garbage, not even knowing what Ukraine is, where Ukraine is. He wouldn't even be able to locate mm. on a map, and no, I mean, I'm like actually. Absolutely, and they're and they're happy to show his tweets on state TV all the time, portraying him as this major journalist. That oh, look, even he understands. Look, Americans understand what's going on. Wow. So yeah, they're they're happy to have it and to use it. Well, their with their recruitment drops significantly, their standards yeah. for recruitment. Oh no, I mean, if you take a look at the Italian characters, you just put your hands in your hair and just say, who, who, who the hell is this guy? Where did they find him? You know, like in which bar, okay, was he in the back table drinking <laughs> and they just sort of just, you know, picked him up. Actually, Hinkle, I think he's more Putin than Putin. Sometimes he says stuff that I just sit there and I say, okay, not even, I don't even think Solovyev would say something like that. Really, really, I honestly think so. He's it just absolute garbage. Absolute yeah. garbage. Yeah, you know, no, they have they have a whole Western propaganda machine lined up that yeah. they've been cultivating for um, decades, and apparently it's lucrative for these people to you know make outrageous statements. Who knows? Now, Definitely. let's start unpacking Prigozhin. After Ukraine's um, successful counteroffensive, you saw Prigozhin getting um, extremely, extremely vocal last September. I mean, he was saying things that normally like I said earlier, like in the Soviet Union, you would be executed, taken to a gulag, jailed, disappeared. And he was getting away with it. And so were his Wagnerites, and so were his uh, loyalists on Telegram channels. And this escalated eventually to a point, and anyone who was watching this unfolding over the past, you know, almost year, it was getting to a point where... Two things were known. One is he was receiving cover from someone around Putin's inner circle because you don't make statements this outrageous, call the defense minister, you know, tell say that he needs to be tried for treason. They called Gerasimov names, an effing devil and a, a faggot. Um, they like, I mean, really crossed every single line that you can. So it was extremely, you know, 
we saw this was coming. And then come March, and to remind everyone, state media propagandists were extremely loyal to Prigozhin and Wagner, you know, prior to this. Um, and then we saw come, you know, July, uh, I apologize, come the end of June, um, you see this rebellion. Now, to get to the first part, how did Russian state media propaganda start changing as Prigozhin became more critical towards um, the defense ministry and even at some point hinting at the Kremlin itself? Uh, Kremlin propagandists certainly tried to distance themselves from Prigozhin when he became um, loud and outspoken and very critical of the defense ministry and, and other figures involved in the, the military actions in Ukraine. And uh, so, for example, Vladimir Solovyov, who recorded the recruitment ad with uh, Wagner and praised Prigozhin and his men as heroes, you saw um, start distancing himself from that and pleading everyone uh, to um, do things in the interests of unity and stop putting th things out there. And uh, Prigozhin actually complained about not being featured on state media, but being basically blacklisted from the Russian state media. It's in um, one of his uh, rants that I've translated for the Russian Media Monitor. And he also uh, said what I said at the time. It sounds like he is predicting a rebellion, and obviously he was already planning it at that point in time. And, uh, you know, the propagandists, um, they admit to talking to him at length privately, but omitting him from state media coverage. For example, the head of RT, Margarita Simonyan, said that she knew he was planning a mutiny. I wonder whether she made any reports about it. I guess maybe someday we'll know. But, um, a lot of them have suspected he is getting ready to to do something, so they they tried to distance themselves from him publicly, but in private, a lot of them recalled continued to communicate with him up to the mutiny after that, certainly they were all too too afraid of uh going anywhere near him and uh, their narrative has changed greatly from praising their so-called heroic deeds to uh, talking about uh, Bergosian as a traitor who deserves death and so that that's the the point of view that that they stuck with up until he actually got killed and then it went back to what a wonderful hero he was and he made this mistake but it certainly wasn't Putin who would want to kill him so it had to be NATO, Ukraine, the Anglo-Saxons. They're, they're typical when all else fails, just blame all the Western countries and Ukraine. Yeah. Just blame everybody, not Putin. Yeah. Absolutely. So now let's get, or anybody else. Now let's get to the mutiny. So Prigozhin announces that he's going to march on Moscow. Um, and then, you know, he makes it to 200 kilometers from Moscow. Clearly, again, he had protection from someone, and if anything, could have been even acting at their orders um, to scare Putin, because uh, the fact that there was no FSB, no Razgvardia, no, uh, you know, any agencies, and he pretty much had a clear path to Moscow, except a few bulldozers uh, that came out to dig a few holes. Um, how, uh, so Putin came out finally as they were marching and he called them traitors and, you know, and gave this very, very strong speech. And within 24 hours, suddenly everything is all good. How did Russian state propagandists handle that part? Reporting live on the mutiny and then, you know, having Putin weigh in and say that they are traitors. And then within 48 hours, Putin says, no, nothing really happened. We're all good. Everything's wonderful. Back to normal. And then announcing this bizarre, which I don't believe happened, uh, meeting between Putin and uh, Prigozhin and his Wagnerites. How did that play out? It was all happening at such breakneck speed that they had a hard time adjusting their narrative. So a lot of them failed to keep up. And while they presented Putin's decision to, quote-unquote, forgive them, um, 
they said it's wise, it's wonderful. Of course, Putin knows better uh, than anyone else. Uh, but at the same time, they couldn't hide their rage because they've all gotten themselves worked into this frenzy. So a lot of them were quite appalled that, that uh, Prigozhin and his uh, associates were allowed to live, uh, live through it and then still travel throughout Russia, travel abroad and, uh, uh, their blood was boiling. They were demanding that they pay for it and saying that uh, they're traitors and should meet the uh, traitor's death. So for um, a little while after the mutiny, this continued. And then, of course, they were obviously told to calm down. And they did up to a point. They poured uh, buckets of mud on Prigozhin, talking about what a felon he is, um, talking about stories from his... Uh, past uh, times when he was uh, convicted for stealing things uh, from houses, basically anything that they could come up with, which uh, now, of course, uh, they're claiming, oh, there was no anti-Purgosian campaign. They all forgave him along with Putin. Uh, but one day before Prigozhin's death, Salavyov was on his show demanding answers for why no one paid for the 15 pilots that were killed during the mutiny. So obviously someone whispered into his ear to bring that up again because that has um, basically been more or less set aside and then all of a sudden he started talking about it again, I guess in preparation for what would be to follow and that way people would be more inclined to think well he had it coming which a lot of them certainly feel that way and aren't all that surprised or shocked that it happened maybe just by the speed with which you know they didn't even wait a respectable time period to make it seem like it maybe possibly wasn't related they didn't even wait all that long so uh, they they had to to readjust about a lot of their true feelings have uh, slipped out in the process. <laughs> now uh, let's get to Wagner itself. Um, they were created pretty much by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Utkin, uh, who's uh, worked for GRU. He returned from Syria. They put together Wagner after his call sign. And it was basically created for the illegal annexation of Crimea and occupation of Donbass. And then from there, they spread to Syria and then all across Africa and, you know, gained a foothold. The Kremlin, the Russian defense ministry, and pretty much in Prigozhin himself have always, you know, gone through great lengths to keep the distance. This is a private military company, despite the fact that PMCs are illegal in Russia's constitution and Wagner had a training base on GRU headquarters. Um, and then uh, you see, uh, you know, so they've kept this distance. And suddenly after the mutiny, Putin comes out. And mind uh, to remind everyone, Wagner is a terrorist organization. They leave a trail of atrocities anywhere they operate. They behead people, torture people, rape people. I mean, it is a, a very equivalent to ISIS and al-Qaeda. So after the mutiny, Putin, for the most bizarre reason, decides to come out and flaunt that he's been paying for this organization from state funds. How did Russian state media react to the fact that now Prigozhin is admitting to paying for this terrorist organization? You know, they have never criticized the government for financing this organization that supposedly didn't even exist and certainly not, not at the, with the government's blessing. Uh, so they, they criticized, uh, Prigozhin for being so ungrateful for all this money that he's been getting basically, but not the government that has been generously paying him for not only Wagner, but also his catering business and his, um, troll enterprise and all of these things that, that he has been dabbling in with Putin's blessing. So, um, as usual, Putin is never to be criticized, but they criticized the recipient quite heavily, and uh, you could see the uh, the anger in their eyes that he was making a lot more money than they probably realized. <laughs> Especially when they uh, show the the buses of uh, filled with cash. Right. And my, 
And my final question, let's get to the day of uh, Prigozhin's alleged death. Um, I'm still, you know, on the fence to see what happens because he already has died several times in plane crashes and, you know, always reappeared. So let's get to that. Um, so Prigozhin and Utkin and the top leadership of Wagner get into this plane. They are, you know, uh, taking off and suddenly the plane either an explosion, um, air-to-surface missile. No one has really determined it. How was it being reported during real time uh, with the propagandist? And also, um, how did you find it interesting how quick they were solving it in real time? Because, I mean, literally, they had... You know, they had a suspect, I think, by the next morning and had some weird fabricated story, or maybe it is true, of, uh, you know, someone who wanted to buy his plane and they came on and decided, you know, like they came on to the air uh, airport right prior his uh, taking off and decided to view the uh, plane and didn't have to go through like, uh, you know, strict security measures. Um, how were they reporting on it as it was happening and unfolding and right after? And then finally, how did it differ from the Telegram channels, especially the ones who are loyal uh, to Prigozhin and even the ones critical, like the terrorist uh, Strelkov, who hates Prigozhin, but at the same time, you know, uh, said that we're going, Russia's going back to the 90s, which referencing mm. assassinations and car bombs and whatnot. Yes, Olga, just like you mentioned, the incredible speed of it all um, was uh, very interesting to to witness. And uh, as you said, the Prigozhin died several times, but it seems like this time it took. And uh, it makes me think so because uh, just before his demise, he flew in from Africa to meet with a Kremlin official. Um, very convenient to make sure that he would be there, very convenient so that they would know where he's going after that and easily being able to trace whether he actually gets on the plane. Um, So all of that seems very uh, coordinated, just as the state media's response. They have reported on this so quickly, and within the, you know, like the first report, they already said a case has been opened into negligent operations of the aircraft, and um, it's like everything was already set in motion. There wasn't much hesitation there, and Solovyov immediately claimed that someone had uh, brought a bomb on board, and he argued that it's not hard at all, so this may be the version of events that they will go with. And so it it definitely was much faster than it usually is and not much hesitation or question as to who exactly was on board. They seem pretty sure um, about all of it. And it it definitely makes sense also when you hear Salviev talk about how the Kremlin was actively disarming and disbanding Wagner in the run-up to this. Uh, They were being broken down into several groups. They were being split up, some put in Africa, some put here, some put there. And um, he used the word disarming them and uh, reducing their numbers and also involving other mercenary groups to take over what they were doing in Africa, take over their operations. So the steps were obviously being taken to uh, replace them with uh, more uh, pliant, more uh, obedient uh, people. And so the the speed of it seems very telling and uh, the lack of hesitation whatsoever is to, to claim that, uh, yes, it's him, yes, he's gone. And, uh, um, of course, contrary to their own previous statements claiming that Putin would never, you know, uh, he wouldn't want to do it. But I, it tickled me to hear even Lukashenko talking about it. What never occurs to any of these people, any of these propagandists or um, these government figures to say Putin would never do it. I literally have never heard any of them say that Putin is not 
into killing people. They never argue that. Their main argument is, is if he did it, he would do it more professionally and it would be well done, better done than, than what had happened. That's essentially what Lukashenko said. If Putin did it, it would be done a lot more professionally <laughs> than that. So not much of a denial. And, uh, so that's, um, that's been the, the reaction there, which, uh, makes me see it as something that was, uh, coordinated, didn't catch them off guard, and um, in a direct contradiction to military bloggers, to the members of Wagner who were obviously in shock and dismay and uh, um, really surprised by what had happened and, uh, um, you know, stunned by it. The state media did not seem all that stunned. They seemed more concerned about themselves, these propagandists. They're mm-hmm. suddenly very carefully watching their words. And uh, mm. so, yeah, they're concerned about themselves, but they don't seem to be all too shocked by what had unfolded. I'm thinking of something you also said in the beginning, going towards broader legal aspect of all of this and the information that was presented, that you had gathered, and then presented at the UN. Is there a case, Julia, for, let's say, the information, the the work of propagandists that can radicalize people, right? We've seen it with January the 6th and that kind of thing. Um, Is there any case at all that can be made or some sort of legal case that they can also be not just sanctioned, but also they can be brought to The Hague? Um, I certainly think so, and I believe that it should be done. They're no different than the Rwanda um, uh, propagandists. They're no different than uh, Hitler's propagandists. They're no different than than modern-day Goebbels. And so uh, I think that uh, there should be a case for holding them legally accountable because in the run-up to Putin's full-fledged invasion of Ukraine, they spent years uh, radicalizing their own population, uh, dehumanizing Ukrainians, and promoting the idea of uh, genocide of the Ukrainian nation. And they are definitely complicit in everything that is happening. And I hope to see them held uh, responsible by an international court in the future. Yeah. It would be a great precedent because I think that it would do a lot to propagandists all over in in Europe, for example, but also in the United States. In the United States, you have different laws, but in Europe, you know, um, promoting genocide this way uh, is something that should be uh, should be they should be held accountable for it. Exactly what you're saying. Okay. And you know, on state television, uh, Duma. A State Duma member, um, Alexei Zhurevlov, in the very beginning of their invasion, estimated they would have to kill about 2 million Ukrainians and the rest would fall in line. No one there disagreed with him. No one disputed it. No one argued with it. They are constantly drawing parallels to what Putin did in Chechnya, which uh, was raising cities to the ground, killing masses of people and that is their formula for Ukraine so there's definitely a case to be made because no one in this day and age should be able to get away with with this kind of uh, violence brutal violence with genocidal motives well I mean they've been pushing you know genocide of Ukrainians for a long time and and I mean even just again because they always make historical um, you know, comparisons, even in the Soviet Union. I mean, they treated Ukrainians like slaves. They treated Georgians like slaves. They, you know, refer to pretty much every other ethnicity besides Russia as like cockroaches. And I mean, it's just, a, this is how they are. I mean, this is the mentality. And uh, leading up to the full-scale invasion and then right post, I mean, they were writing about genocide. They were writing articles about how they will, you know, mm-hmm. basically murder all Ukrainians, how we have to destroy their culture because it's a created fake culture that, you know, doesn't really exist. I mean, yeah, it's all too probably. real, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, their their own words will convict them someday. 
Let's yes, hope. That's Let's what, hope. That's we, what, that's we have to. We, we have to. Yeah, we yeah. have to make sure it happens. And, um, you know, and they all need to pay for what they've done in Chechnya, in Georgia, in Syria, in Libya, across Africa. I mean, every single way this war criminal state has operated, they have to pay for this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Julia, we'd like to thank you. And we want to remind everybody Please, please, please hop over to Julia's uh, Russian Media Monitor on YouTube and subscribe uh, because, it, I mean, the, the videos are difficult to watch, but it really gives you an idea of what they're pushing out, the narratives, and it's interesting to see timing. It's interesting to see what you've pointed out, Julia, even just a little the way they say things or if they're no, a little more hesitant, so on and so forth. It's, it's truly uh, important to watch and also to see how this is going to play out uh, legally, we hope. Okay, this is Absolutely. our hope. So thanks, Julia. Thank you so much for, for coming and giving us all of this. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to, to be with you, ladies. I greatly admire all the work that you're doing. Oh, so it's, thank you. I'm glad to join you anytime. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help us out with our independent work, please subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack and on our YouTube channel. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Kamara. Our production team is headed by Maddie Kaparov and the theme music by Oresta Kamara. So please don't forget to visit our Kremlin File Substack for links to our socials and to wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts.